0: The lights go down and shadows fall. Welcome to a world of mysteries, of conspiracies, of hidden and forgotten knowledge. There's a world more strange, more frightening, and more fascinating than most people ever imagined or dare to contemplate. Your parents, your teachers, never told you the whole story, either out of ignorance or fear. Your politicians may know, but they keep their mouths shut. The door is open. Throw off your chains and blinders. Arm yourselves with the truth, and take a walk along the razor-sharp precipice of The Outer Edge. Welcome to another fantabulous episode of The Outer Edge. I'm Winnie Michael Mott, here with my good friend Tim Schwartz, and you were just listening to the incredible music of Bezel out of uh, Texas. Bezel's tune, There's a Shadow, and after that, uh, the Vias Brothers, also out of Texas.
1: Yeah, that's playing playing in the background right now. Awesome. Awesome, there it is.
0: And these guys are very talented. And check them out if you can. If you can, go to their Facebook pages or uh, uh, find them on Amazon. Uh, it's really good music. And it is where I am, December the twenty-first. I'm sure it's the twenty-second already. Where Tim is. And Tim, I heard a uh, uh, a rumor that this is the longest night in history. I don't know how they figure that. I think it's the longest night of the year.
1: But uh, yeah, so. you know, I I heard that, but then and and I didn't get a chance to read it, but I just I just saw an article just a little while ago as I was prepping for the show that said, "Oh no, wait, actually it's not the longest uh, night in history." So uh, yeah, I'll, have yeah. to, I'll have to look that up and see. I, you know, I suspect it's one of those, uh, you know, like internet rumors. Yeah, kind of, yeah. kind of like the, uh, you know, this this year is the year that Mars comes closest to the Earth yeah, and it has exactly. its centuries, and it'll be the size of a full moon. Well,
0: I heard it in passing. Actually, my my son said, "Hey, Dad, there's something on the internet that says this is the longest night in the history of the Earth," and I'm thinking, well. Who's been around to measure the entire history of the Earth, the length of nights going back, you know, to the formation of the planet? I don't think anybody's been doing that. So I strongly <laughs> doubt that that's the case. But, uh, yes, this is the longest night of the year. That's um, right. But other than that, no, I, I, the I, shortest I, call,
1: day.
0: I call BS, which is um, – <laughs> what, what's, what's a good uh, – we, we can borrow it from, from – from, uh, from Jackal over on uh, Skywatcher Bat Squatch.
1: Uh, I call Bat Squatch on that. Um, but, you know. Uh, there you go, yeah.
0: Anyway, in case people are wondering, uh, Skywatcher Radio is another program here on the PSN Radio Network. And uh, so I there you have it. I don't believe and, uh, it. By the way, tonight our calling
1: number, <laughs> as usual, is 786
0: 245 8127. 786 245 8127. Give us a call, complain, bitch, moan, uh, shower us with uh, platitudes, whatever you want to do, but, but at least try to stay on topic. Send us, send
1: us, send us money.
0: That'll you hey, know, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, you know, we'll 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 take that as well. You know? indeed, indeed. <laughs> a, a nice a nice Christmas present.
0: Hmm, maybe we should put a donate to Mike and Tim button on the page. There you go. Every other radio show does. Please donate money
1: to us.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I may not be too bad of an idea. Hey, everybody else does it. <laughs> you know? It uh, would help pay for
0: our time, you
1: know? So, mm. there you go. So, yeah, uh, man, that's true. how have you been, man? <laughs> uh, not not too bad. Uh, last, uh, last week, let's see. Last week, we had uh, uh, Tim Beckley. As, uh, as our co-host and his guest. And thank heavens, because, boy, I tell you, I just, uh, uh, was not, not feeling the best. Feeling my best last week. Right. So, and it's, it's, it's continued on a little bit into this week, but, uh, doing, uh, doing better now. I can, I can at least, uh, uh, uh talk. <laughs> last week I wasn't too sure if I could, uh, right. uh even maintain, you know, a conversation for an ex- you know extended period of time before, uh, uh, uh bursting into um just like coughing fit so you know one of the one of the benefits of winter i suppose
0: (laughs) yeah yeah it's just crazy i mean i was on uh, skywatcher radio er earlier this week with uh with jackal and and alan and uh they had paul dale roberts on with us and skywatcher radio is sort of a round table type situation and uh uh, but poor Paul, man, you could tell he had a cold, it was really rough he, you know he he but he was a trooper, he always is and and we need to get him on this show by the way, because he was on he was on uh our previous incarnation show when we were doing Unra- unraveling the secrets a couple right. of times, yeah, so we need to get him over here because he 's a great guest, but yeah he he was having a hard time with some kind of cold or congestion or something, and uh it seems to be going around, thank goodness it hasn't really hit me yet but uh you know, you never know. Well, yeah.
1: well and I don't know if you uh uh read, I guess, that uh this year's flu shots that uh it's it's not uh it's not going to be as effective, I guess, against the the, the strain of flu that's becoming predominant this winter. And I did hear something about that. Yeah, well, you know, they have to in order to prepare for the season's flu shots, I mean, they have to, uh, uh, I guess, estimate what strain is going to be the predominant strain, you know, across the country over the winter time, and then prepare their vaccine to tackle that particular strain. And if it, you know, if that strain is not the one that becomes, you know, the dominant player over the winter, well, then, you know, your, your flu shot, while not... Uneffective uh, right. is not is not going to be as effective as uh, uh, you know hope to be, and apparently that's the way it's going to be this year. So, <laughs> and, and of course, this will be the year that you know I, I don't know, like the zombie flu, you know, yeah, <laughs> will yeah. will surface and then well, the, you know, the it's, zombie it's apocalypse will start. You know? <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Here, here's the thing about the flu shots. When I get a flu shot, flu shot makes me feel like crud. That's terrible. I'm, You know, and miserable, sometimes it makes me mildly ill, but other times it doesn't. However, if I get the flu, then I know for a fact that I'm fighting a battle there, and I will prevail. (laughs) I may be miserable for a few days, but, you know. I will survive. That's right. And my immune system will actually truly be stronger from dealing with it. Whereas, Whereas, when they come out with this supposed Ebola vaccine that they're working on, Everybody else can get it. I'm not getting it. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Johnson & Johnson is working on an Ebola vaccine. And they're actually mixing the Ebola with the very mild yet still somehow alive uh, versions of, of the rabies virus. Oh, Really? Yeah, to create their vaccine. And they're saying they could even tweak it so that it could make you make you immune to both rabies and Ebola. Now, if there's not a perfect combination for a damn zombie apocalypse, I don't know what it is.
1: <laughs> that, that's it. That's it. Yeah, 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 yeah,
0: I, I, you guys want to line up and take that vaccine? Go yeah. ahead. I think I'll just stay up here in the bunker with my slingshot
1: mm yeah boy I tell you that, that that one does boy you know you you have you have one just one little slip in the genetic structure of yeah. the viruses you're working on there <laughs> uh, or something uh, mutates somehow or, or oh yeah yeah well I mean uh, I mean we you know were, I mean, we sound, it, it, we sound
0: it, like luddites here you know that but I don't care if you're gonna go tweaking things like Ebola and rabies together to make a vaccine count me out
1: yeah, well, you know, I mean uh I I am not uh, against vaccinations. I mean no, I'm not I, I you know I've had I've had all I've had all my shots, distemper, rabies, well, things I mean, like I t- that. I, tell yeah.
0: you what, <laughs> I mean I'm, I I mean I'm glad that I had the small pa- smallpox vaccine when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because that's one disease I do not want. <laughs> But you get the smallpox; your chances of survival are much lower than, say, if you get the flu. Okay.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. So there you yeah. go. It's, I mean, it's
0: all a matter of the odds, you know. It, it, juggling things in an intelligent manner.
1: <laughs>
0: well, I'm not uh, discouraging anybody from getting the flu vaccine.
1: No, 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 no. Get, get, get your flu vaccine. Take well, your children out. Get it, them vaccinated. It, you know. <laughs> if you wanna. Right. Get it if yeah, you want to. get it if you want to, but yeah, I'm like you. I mean, I, I, I may be a little distrustful of any vaccine that uh, is going to contain, you know, uh, even, <laughs> even small strings of genetic clusters of uh, rabies in them. Uh, you know, let's let hey, I'll, I'll let I, I'll wait a couple of years and see how other people do, and exactly, uh, exactly, and, uh, <laughs> and we'll I'll, see how I'll, it goes. I'll put it this way:
0: I'll watch. <laughs> <laughs> you go ahead, I will watch. It's kind of like, I, kinda like when I you're like, a teenager, and there's always some crazy guy.
1: Let's jump off <laughs> the roof. You go ahead, yeah, oh, watch. Yeah. You go in, uh, that's right. You do I, that. I, I like to watch. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen the movie, right? Being there. Yo, the oh, movie. my most favorite. Oh, that's that's probably <laughs> that my one of my most Chauncey. favorite movies. Chauncey yeah. the perfect. Uh, that's a great. That's one. that is a uh, you know like a hidden gem of a movie that not that many people know about. It really and, is to the
0: essence of politics, doesn't
1: it? It really is. It really is. You know, and uh, if, if uh, those in our audience have not heard of it, it's called Being There with Peter Sellers. I don't know if it's available on on Netflix or Hulu or right. some of the others, uh, but look don't give, for don't it. Give too much about. Oh it. no, I'm not. That's I'm not going to say anything else. I'm just. I, I highly recommend it. Go and. Uh, Go and watch it yeah oh well that's that's like um, who was it that was showing this? I think it was Turner classic movies the other night. Uh, showed, uh, a movie called, uh, Five Million Years to Earth. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, not, uh, not to be mistaken with, I think it's Five Million Miles to Earth, which is an older movie. But Five Million Years to Earth was, uh, um, a hammer film production from 1967. Originally it was called Quartermass and the Pit. Yes. Excellent and movie. Excellent. Ex- Excellent yes. movie, and uh, but you know the uh, the the uh, uh, the distributors, uh, the United States distributors were afraid, and and naturally so they you know that the American audience wouldn't recognize you know Quarter Mass in the Pit right. and go and see it, so they gave it the 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 the, the <laughs> uh, awesomely bad title. Five million years to Earth, right? Uh, because that that really doesn't explain the uh, the the plot any better. But no, but, uh, but, that, but again,
0: that, don't get don't give away too much. But let's just say no. it, it it revolves around a spacecraft that had, that crashed a very long time ago.
1: Mm-hmm. Excellent you know movie. i th- yeah. I think that you know. That that may be one of the first movies that actually broached the topic that that humanity may not have evolved naturally on Earth, or be if you want to go with the you know the religious stance that that you know God waved his magic wand and you know humanity just magically appeared on the planets, but that instead that we were the result of genetic manipulation by an extraterrestrial race.
0: Or that uh, maybe even maybe even an accident, but it, at the same time it also broached on the subject of ancient astronauts pretty for you know pretty early in 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 terms of media, um, oh yeah, not not, not yeah. print media, but uh, you know the idea in print media has been around for gosh maybe a couple hundred years one form or another but but uh, yeah, in film it's one of the earliest examples of that.
1: I can't, I can you know, and, and, you know, maybe somebody out there who's, who's really a movie bus, bus, uh, um uh, buff can tell me, but, uh, I can't think of any other, uh, movie before that time that actually, you know, seriously, um approached that, that topic in, in, in the plot of a movie. So, right. if, if, if right. anybody out there knows, you know, let me, you know, let me know, you know, send me a yeah, email or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of ancient aliens, though, um, I guess that uh, there's uh, going to be some episodes coming up that uh, somebody we know is going to be on. Yes.
0: Well, I've heard a rumor,
1: but I don't know for <laughs> sure. Because <laughs> I heard here's, it. The, here's
0: the thing. When, when you go out and do that show, mm-hmm. you'll get like an email saying, you're going to be on this date and you might be on here this date. Okay, I missed the show last Friday. I don't know if I was on there or not. I have no idea. Uh, my book sales and, and, spiked a little bit, so maybe I was
1: on there. I don't know. What, what was I, the subject last week?
0: Uh, the Great Flood. From what? Great from, what flood. Just, from what I just saw, okay. I'm supposed to be on one about pyramids, but I don't know when that's going to take place. It's they said that was it will be the 26th, which obviously is this Friday, right? But I also talked about. Uh, subjects related to the show that was just on on the 19th so if I were on there I didn't know it so you know I'll definitely have to to find out if I was on there or not I don't have any idea
1: (laughs) well and and, you know and, and for those who don't don't know I mean when when you're interviewed for shows like this uh you you're asked like Dozens of questions for, for
0: two or three hours. Two hours. Yeah. Or so.
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that that covers just a whole gamut of subjects, you know. And uh, and then you know you, you you pop up every now and then on different episodes. Uh, you know, it's not like you know some people think that uh, they'll fly you out every time to uh, to answer questions. Concerning one particular episode, then they send you home, and then you know they'll call you later and say, "Hey, you know, we're doing an episode on this. Come back out." No, that doesn't work that way. That nope. would just be prohibitively expensive. It sure would, know. yeah. So, I mean, they they get you out there and you know and grill you, you know, uh, as much as they possibly can, uh, thinking about whatever episodes they're going to be doing that season. And uh,
0: sure, and that's just good business, you know, good business sense. So,
1: oh yeah, yeah, it really is. Well, I mean, it's not like they they pay you anything anyway but uh, you know they you know it, it costs the money to fly you out there and then you know feed you while you're there and pay for the cab or whatever you know to to make it to the you know, location that they're going to shoot at so <laughs> yep exactly but uh,
0: they were very nice professional people by the way um i'm still uh, honored to have been asked to to speak on the show and and they were just really really gracious people so
1: Well, you know, speaking of ancient astronauts, uh, you sent me a, uh, an article, uh, the other day that dealt with, uh, uh, Dr. Jim Brandenburg, is that his name? Uh, I sent you so many articles, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he is, and, and this is, a, he's somebody that I've Oh, to get yes, on. yes, 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 I remember. I yeah. would love, I would love to get yeah. him on our show because I've heard him talk yeah. before. He's, he's written uh, an absolutely excellent book on Mars. Uh, I, I need to look it up and, uh, and see what it is. And, and I mean, he, he talked about this particular subject in his book that's been out for a couple of years now. And, and i and I tell you something the guy the guy is 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 really intelligent and you know uh, and I think that maybe he you know, he may be on to something uh, i think I think
0: he may be too, but understand that that even back in uh i mean this this is not a new idea no, no. and it, it goes all the way back to Percival lowell you know um and that was a really long time ago, but you know even when I first wrote the very first edition of Caverns, Caunders, and Concealed Creatures. I talked about the anomalies on Mars and the evidence for ancient civilization that was destroyed, that there was a war, a conflict, you know, in the solar system. And it, this, and and then, obviously, he's, he's come up with something which is really interesting, where he's looking at the radioactive isotopes, which apparently basically coat the surface of Mars. Right. And he's determined that these isotopes have to be... The fallout of a nuclear event, a planetary nuclear event, and that's very interesting because I've seen enough photos to convince me that there there is just absolute uh, a debris field on Mars, you know, in many areas.
1: Mm hmm. Well and and he was able to he was able to determine also I guess due to the direction uh, you know like the prevailing westerlies or whatever they have on Mars you know right. he was able to determine you know uh, to his satisfaction you know where this event yeah. took place where you know, the on Mars were, yeah. yeah where the impact at, le- at least
0: been. two impact areas and maybe more and it is interesting that they're very near to some of the the, the areas where the biggest uh artifacts or, or remnants of what maybe ruins can be seen, like you know, the Sidonia plateau and, and mm-hmm. things of that nature. And uh, yeah. you know, I, I know that uh you, you remember the little photo that everybody made made a big joke about where they said, you know, is it Bigfoot on Mars? Is it the little oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, and everybody <laughs> thought it was so funny, ha ha. Well, I got the high risk back then when it happened, I got the actual high risk data file from NASA before it disappeared from their website, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay? And I've still got it, and it is available on my website if you know where to look. But um, I got this high-res data file, and, I mean, it's really high-res. And I opened it up in Photoshop and zoomed in on areas, and then I isolated a bunch of stuff out of those areas. And I'm going to tell you right now that those are not uh, naturally formed objects. They're artificial objects. They're machined precision-machined objects buried in the dirt, sticking out, um, what are obviously metal objects with flanges on them, um, they look like, you know, machine parts. There's one object that looks like a honeycomb cereal. You know what that looks like? Oh, yeah. It looks, yeah, it looks like that with the with the, the holes or the divots all the way around, the same exact shape, but it looks like it's probably about the size of a hubcap, and hmm. the entire object is laying in, in plain view, and there's no way in hell that an object like that that's perfectly symmetrical and the evenly spaced curves and, and, and uh, indentations is going to just somehow form on the surface of a, of a rocky planet. You know, there are several, like I said, several artificial objects in that debris field because that's what the image is. It's, it's at the edge of a crater, looking out across the, the edge of the crater and then down into the crater. And... It's absolutely full of anomalous-looking stuff, and it looks like there were probably buildings there, and they just got blown to smithereens. Mm-hmm. That's what it looks like. So, oh, wow. you know, um, people can scoff, but it's, it's kind of like any, any type of coincidence, you know. Twice, okay, maybe that's a coincidence. Three times, okay, coincidence. Uh, Thirty times? Forty times? No, that's not a
1: coincidence.
0: <laughs> I'm talking about one shot and one image, yeah. you know. Um so, yeah, it, it, there's definitely something to it. And, and he's definitely, uh, he's bringing a certain level of, of scientific expertise to the evaluation of it now that that needs to be done.
1: Though I'm sure that he has suffered the slings and arrows. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. yeah. So if you uh, look, from, look at that, you'll see. Uh, yeah. You'll see on that, on that very link I sent you people, you know, calling him a pseudoscientist and all this other kind of junk. But, uh you know, now, it, again, it, it, it goes back to what we talked about before with uh, Albert Wegener. You know, Wegener came up with this idea of continental drift. Yeah. And he figured out that all the plates of the continents looked like they had fit together at one point. And he was a serious scientist and, and academic. And, and uh, he published his theory and promoted it. And he absolutely was destroyed. His career was destroyed. He was ridiculed. Um, and now... You know, people don't even know who he is. But, Mm -hmm. you know, 40 years later, somebody says, hey, look, all these continents look like they fit together. And they came up with a theory that they call plate tectonics.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And it's the
0: same damn theory. It's almost exactly the same theory. Wegener's continental drift theory is a precursor to, to the plate tectonic theory. And, of course, it's all just theories. I mean, you know, but the thing is that he never got the recognition for the idea and it's the same thing with the, this thing, stuff, all the people that evaluate Mars and and, th- and other other things like that, you know, other types of anomalies, you know, they get poo pooed and, and ridiculed and called pseudoscientists and crackpots and stuff. And then, you know, 40, 50 years from now, somebody else will come up with something and take credit for it and it'll get published in you know, all the journals.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, uh, now look, uh, this week, the uh NASA released uh I guess the results of um the Mars Rover Curiosity and their uh, uh its its analysis of um methane plumes right. on Mars. Now this uh this actually um this first came out gosh I think it was last year where um, uh, methane plumes were being observed on Mars, and they were coming, you know, like at specific times over specific areas, uh, the, the 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 levels of methane on Mars would peak, and then uh, and then go back down again, and you know, and naturally, at first the speculation uh, was that you know. Uh, you know, biological activity because I mean that's you know here on Earth, when you have uh, 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 an, uh, an uptick in methane like that, it's 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 usually caused by uh, uh, you know biological activity. Well, then uh, naturally, then it was immediately shot down uh, right. by scientists saying that no, 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 no. There's there's all kinds of um, chemical. Uh, reactions that can cause the same kind of uh, of, of results. well now once again they've, uh, they've they've re-released this story with with new results and they you know, they seem more and more determined to, to, to say that you know this isn't some kind of just you know like natural you know chemical reaction. this is probably a biological uh, incident of some kinds. Which you know, I find that I find that's very interesting. That right. you know, so well, so it, so quick that they would uh, you know come back with that again.
0: Well, you know, rotting vegetation obviously is the greatest contributor to methane on Earth, um, and people don't realize that uh, flatulence is probably right up there, close to that amount. And those are huge amounts, but there's the there's in terms of of surface area stuff, but okay. actually. I guess I misspoke because really the largest area of methane production is coming from underground even on earth right and it's now being conjectured that there may be you know uh, extremophile organisms deep 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 in the crust of the earth that are largely responsible for producing a lot of, a lot of that methane.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So you know these are things that are they're germs, they're bacteria.
1: Yeah. But yeah, well, produce, uh, you know, there's you know, there's uh, there's forms of yeast that yeah. uh, that that produce methane, and they're, they're they're little yeast burps and farts, you know. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, so, so yeah, th-
0: these measurements on Mars indicate the presence of life because most of the time, life is responsible for the creation of methane.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and considering you know if if it was a you know say like a chemical reaction. Right. right, taking you know, taking place in the you know the the the, the geological structure. Um, I, I guess I of should the say most of the time, but often often it's life. I mean, right. you look at
0: uh, Titan, you know, the moon of of, of Saturn, mm-hmm. and it's got you know oceans of methane, methane mm-hmm. atmosphere, and all this kind of stuff. Obviously, that's not a, a biological situation there.
1: But no, when it but comes, it's planet, not it's not coming from specific locations like it is on right. Mars.
0: Exactly, exactly. It's or, a, or it, on Earth. It, it, Right,
1: right. You know, it's it's a it's a you know like a a planet wide event. While on Mars, it's coming from specific locations.
0: Well, a good a good uh, corollary or or a parallel of this is the fact that before the existence and eventual uh, blossoming of, of green plant life and chlorophyll, there wasn't any oxygen on Earth. Right. Now we have an oxygen-rich atmosphere, and it is because of plants. It's not coming from anywhere else. So, you know, it's the same kind of thing with this methane with these rocky, small rocky planets like Mars, or even a good-sized one like ours. That methane's probably biologically produced. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. but anyway, you know, we, yeah, there are so many things like this out there that are that are that are worthy of consideration, and then there are others which are worthy of derision, and you have to kind of uh, weed them out, you know, when you uh, um, when you look at this stuff, for instance, when you talk about anomalies on Mars, you're going to have people who say, well, when I was a kid,
1: I was <laughs> part of
0: a secret program that, that we would teleport to Mars, and, and uh, uh, President Obama was in my class of Mars astronauts, and we were five years old, and, uh, you know, and that discredits any kind of serious look at anomalies on Mars.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: It's all right. <laughs> so, and that's, what, that's what's known as a humbug.
1: <laughs> wow, that's interesting that you should say that, Mike. It is, isn't it? Bec- yeah, because, you know, our guest tonight is uh, Kathy Mauer. Um, and she is the uh, uh, executive director curator of the Barnum Museum in uh, um, Bridgeport, Connecticut. And she is going to talk about P.T. Barnum, who actually uh, came up with that term. He's the great humbug that's right that's right well uh, and if you don't know what that means we'll have to ask her uh, about that so you know I'm really interested in in talking to Kathy tonight uh, I mean it's uh, she she is going to offer us some some great insights uh, on PT Barnum so why don't we go to our break right now and when we come back uh, we will discuss uh, the, the, the the history of PT Barnum So, everyone stay tuned. We will be right back with uh, more on The Outer Edge. And you're listening to the PSN Radio Network.
2: I would like to direct this to the distinguished members of the panel. You lousy corksuckers, you have violated my Fargan rights. This somnambatching country was founded so that the liberties of common patriotic citizens like me, could not be taken away by a bunch of Fargan ice holes like yourselves. Thank you very much.
0: Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration.
2: Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! <gasps>
0: it's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council.
2: Whoa.
1: The moment my son saw a redwood tree. It's huge! Is the moment I knew that for him.
2: You can't! the top of that
1: Even the sky has no limit.
2: There are some moments only the forest can inspire. Find yours at discovertheforest.org. Learn about forests near you and discover cool things to do when you go. Your moment is out there. Find it at discovertheforest.org.
1: Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council.
0: You're listening to The Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz. Only on PSN Radio. joy to be joined by our guest Kathleen Marr. Kathleen can we should we, should we call you Kathleen or Kathy?
2: Kathy is fine. Kathy is okay, fine. Great.
0: Great. Um how are you?
2: I'm very good. Thank you. I'm I'm awake. This is huge. <laughs> uh, museum folk uh, get up early. So this is this is a whole new adventure for me, I must say.
0: Well, well it's pretty you. interesting. Thank I watched uh, i was just going to tell her my son and I watched those uh Man at the Museum movies today.
2: All true. So, uh, Ultra. <laughs>
0: it all comes to life at night.
2: Absolutely. <laughs>
1: uh, well, Kathy, thank you very much for, for taking your uh, your time to be with us tonight. We really appreciate it. Yes, we do.
2: Oh, thank you for asking me. Thank you for uh, asking me.
1: Oh no! It's it, it, it's really a fascinating uh, subject. Now, uh, for our audience who who may not be familiar uh, with you, you're the executive director curator of the uh, Barnum Museum in uh, it's Bridgeport, Bridgeport, Connecticut. Correct?
2: Yes. Yes. All it's, right. It's well, out of New York.
1: Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. I start to you're really close to New York.
2: Yeah. Yeah, but uh, you know, by train it's like an hour. Uh, with no traffic, it's like fifteen minutes. No, it's, <laughs> it's yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, okay. The, uh, you know, there's there's this all kinds of things that I want to cover tonight, but uh, I I want the first thing that I want to ask you is the uh, um, you had. Uh, a tornado in Bridgeport, yeah. Connecticut, in 2010. Now that doesn't happen very often there in the East Coast, no. does it?
2: No, no. Tornadoes don't happen uh, really in this part of the country, or at least they never used to happen very much in this part of the country. And if you look at a map, um, you know of Tornado Alley, the whole like the Northeast is just is just clear. It's just white. It does not measure on the scale at all. And um, one lovely day in June in 2010, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners that live in the Midwest uh, know this, um, but the sky got a very funny color, started seeing lightning, hmm. and it, I was outside uh, about a block away from the museum just ready to do a program, and I was on my way back, and I was like, whoa, what's going on? I can wait for that to pass and turned around to go back into the building, and the door would not shut behind us. It, I, I was like, what, what's going on? And with that um, came the, just the, what I learned was, called it's called the blunder effect. It's the whiteout on the huge glass doors where we were standing. It, there was no warning. Everybody, you know, I have a disaster plan. I wrote it like 10 years ago, and sure enough, you know, everything from, biohazard wastes to to hurricanes (laughs) which do happen here but you know it said when you get the warning for a tornado and there was no warning so we did not know what happened nobody in the region knew what happened and it smack hit in front of the historic building building Mm. is uh 1893 didn't hit the building across the street um, typical tornado behavior, and my life changed in seconds. Um, mm. The dome, it's a massive circular dome, and thank God it didn't collapse. But we're facing a, t- just to fix the historic building, a $20 million historic rehab. Um what, wow. Yeah, and there's no way around it. It's it's a landmark building, so we comply with the Department of the Interior, and it's a it's an agonizing process. Um, it's a tough process under normal circumstances, but when it's natural disasters, and I've been maneuvering the process, and I was in the tornado, so there's been no downtime. It's been right. four years of management. Then the next year. We got hit with Hurricane Irene, and then the following year, it was Hurricane Sandy, let alone the record story. I mean, you can't make that kind of stuff up, and we did feel the earthquake that was in Washington, D.C. It's like oh, yeah. just waiting for the locusts next, and it's just <laughs> – it, so it's been a remarkable journey of resilience and to keep your spirits up and to keep the the institution alive and relevant has been quite an undertaking no disaster plan no graduate school class teaches you any of that so we've really become the poster child for it and and um believe it or not 4 years down the road we are still negotiating insurance wow um nothing from fema it's been um it's been it's been it's been a test, <laughs> but we we keep going and we keep you know looking for supporters and then you know help us revitalize the museum. I'll tell you, the thing I think I can be most proud of of the museum and the and the staff that's here now. We had to emergency evac twenty five. No no nobody was hurt, but well people were hurt. But no deaths in this, by the way. Very, very cute to say. But we had to emergency evac 25,000 artifacts. Woo. Took just over a year. But um, with, and we still have conservation going on, but out of all of that, only one artifact was lost of catastrophic damage. We lost an autobiography, one of Barnum's original autobiographies, um, Mm. No Way Back. And that was the only, we managed to save Everything else, and that was Herculean. And I give my staff and the the dozens of um, colleagues that just came in in the weeks afterwards to help us. I, I salute every single one of them. It was a tough, tough time.
1: Hmm. So, that, so now, what was the uh, uh, was was the major damage caused by water
2: um, to the artifacts? It was hypersonic shock. Really? yes, that it, you know the worst thing to happen to an artifact is um, aside from fire because there's no way back from that, right. but a massive spike in relative humidity. Mm-hmm. It's that major fast fluctuation. and that's what a tornado is. It's in right. its out. <laughs> right. so, every, so everything um, takes in moisture at a different rate at a different level. So for instance, the tom Thumb carriages were the most damaged because it's wood it's it's painted wood it's it's um metal it's leather it's fabric um so when the wood of the wagon wheels expanded from that 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 intense moisture and then it all went away everything like um swelled and then contracted very quickly so all of the paint just split apart and Flaked off um, because the HVAC system in the building sucked in all of the tornado garbage. You see a tornado because it's just carrying all that garbage. So it contaminated the HVAC system, grinded out the gears. We had no way to deal with the relative humidity balances. So everything started molding over. Um, so there was no way to stop the mold, and people say it's like, oh well, you get the freezers, do so people could come in. Well, the mayor had to shut the city down. There was no way into the city because all of the trees were down. It's it's an urban place. It's um, you know, it's not, you know, we're not in open spaces in the country where we're a real. So this this is the largest city in the state of Connecticut, just out of you know, just outside of New York City, mm-hmm. so. The fire trucks couldn't even get here. We know that they were trying to get here. So anybody that could try to come in to help us couldn't get into the city because the mayor um, shut it down, of course. Um, And then there were so many trees down that you you just couldn't get through all of the debris to help. So it it was quite interesting.
0: Well, once the mold spores are in the air in large yeah. quantities, it's almost impossible to stop it.
2: It, it absolutely is.
0: And, and when, you, know, you said that the, the sky looks strange. It, it has sort of a yellowish, weird, greenish, yellowish color to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. because that tornado puts a lot of debris in the air before it ever gets to you. Yeah. And so it kind of just, it, it really makes things look strange. Whenever that, you see that... that
1: that, that, that's a typical summer day here in Indiana, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you know, you turn around and spit and there's a tornado.
2: I'll You know, it's not that it's a funny thing, but when the hurricanes um, came, you know, because that's one thing we are used to. And literally on the other side of like the wall that I'm looking at right now. Is um, is a road where the train tracks are, and then it's the Long Island Sound. So, particularly Hurricane Sandy, mm. the water came to the back of the building. So, it, it, there's just no stopping some of this. Um, so, to do all of the reports for the condition of the building, we had forensic reports on top of forensic reports, and it, it's just been uh, a. a testament in stick to as Mr. Barnum would say just right. deal with every day as it comes because you just don't know what and you know we had the tv cameras uh come out because uh, I worked for P.D. Barnum and it was like call the media let them know we're boarding up the building again we're getting ready for it and they they put the microphones in front of me and they're like are you ready for this and I'm like oh we are so ready I mean we, <laughs> we, you know anything that we could possibly do we had such an intense puffback into the emergency gallery, where all of the artifacts are now. It was a, it's a modern section um, that was buffered from the tornado, but Sandy was so fierce that it forced all of that grimy yuck from the, like truly, like a major puffback that you would see that. Shoots out like all that black, kind of oily grit. So oh, right. uh-huh. that, yeah, went on top of the artifacts that oh, we man. had already cleaned from Sandy uh, from the tornado. So we had to oh, do it all crisis. over. Now, I,
0: did you get any major flooding with with Sandy?
2: We had more water from the tornado. Wow! The flooding literally went around the whole back of the building, but never found its way towards the front where the historic building is. So, and um, and we got darn lucky, darn lucky.
1: Hmm.
2: So the the main water came in with the tornado, and there was so much glass. They're they like nine foot glass panels, huge that just shattered. So all of the water was underneath the glass for the tornado. So we had no idea how much water right. came in, and then it water finds its way, and it just. Poured into yeah. the basement level um, artifact storage onto the rack of Barnum documents, all of the uh. artifacts. So it was like, really, you know. But like I said, we, um, you know, thanks to quick thinking, we were able to um, stabilize, and get it secured. I mean, there's no, there was no stopping the water at that point, but we managed to get the artifacts away as fast as possible, and. Um, right. New enough to call the conservators, and we, you know, like I said, we had a we had the plan, the disaster plan. Um, and I actually travel around the country now speaking about disaster readiness. And um, you know, you got all of the things that your disaster plan tells you to do usually is useless. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, so it's. You, if i went through it for no other reason than to pay it forward to help somebody who might be in a situation where they can pick up the phone and just ask a question or to pull them back off the ledge because it's it's scary you're in quite a you know you're in a scary situation and then um and then you have to do your job you know so it's it's been quite a it's been Quite a challenge, but we're getting there.
1: Well, now, how how long had you been working for the museum uh, before mm-hmm. this happened?
2: I came um, I came to the Barnum in uh, 1998. Okay, uh, academically, I'm am a, I'm a uh, trained curator, and um and I was I believe it or not I wasn't going to take the job at first. I was just like <laughs> mm, I'm not quite sure at that point. I didn't know the depth of Barnum history. So I said, let me help you out as like a registrar, just dealing with a few exhibits that were coming in. And I started to learn um, Barnum's story, and it was magic. So um, they offered me the full-time position again, and I says, yeah, we'll jump into some real planning. Uh, tell, Tell a deeper, a more enriching Barnum story. And that was a challenge. That I was really engaged in, and I went through about four directors, and I finally said, I'm doing it myself, so in 2005, I became the director, too, yeah, you know, yeah, well,
1: I, I I imagine then that, I mean, that, that has to be kind of a, a a daunting task, because, uh, you know, I think that there are a lot of stories out there about P.T. Barnum that, you know, aren't Aren't true have been em- embellished, you know. People seem to associate him more with, uh, you know, the circus, which came yeah. quite a bit later in his life. Yes, uh, you know, uh, freak shows and stuff like that. So, I mean, you know, it's uh, it, it's fantastic that you're going out there and uh, uh, telling the truth about this guy. I mean, and he really was. I mean, he was an amazing fellow.
2: Uh, yeah, he was absolutely brilliant. And and you're at, you're you're totally correct. Um, the lecture that I Travel around with is uh, P. T. Barnum, the man, the myth, the legend, um, because there is so much mythology that we combat every day. And you're right. I, whenever, whether it's a group, uh, you know, a group of lifelong learners, or if it's even kids, you can you can ask the question, just throw it out there. It's like you know, when you think of P. T. Barnum, what comes to mind? And interestingly, it doesn't. I mean, we talk to people from all over the world. Really, come here from. Prague and France and and England, Australia. And everybody knows that that there's a Barnum connection, but very often they're not quite sure why. And very often then people do immediately jump to the circus. But you're right. It was his retirement project. And that's shocking to people. And usually when I do lifelong learners and you say it's like, okay, the greatest show on earth was P.T. Barnum's retirement you know, fun, they were all looking at their watches saying, I'm on my way to the golf course as soon as you stop talking, you know. <laughs> yeah. They're they, they like, he did what? Um, but that's exactly it. I mean, he had a huge life before the idea of the circus came to him. And when you really deconstruct him to the place where he always went back, where his heart, where his real love was – it's his American Museum um, on Lower Broadway in New York City that opened on January first, eighteen forty-two. Wow! So, he, yeah, the idea of the freak show, like you said, is much more Coney Island, and right. Barnum's long dead. That really, he's he's been given that by the twentieth century. You know, we've sort right. of. You know, endowed him with the whole freak show kind of thing, and it's not quite that. It was much well, more. billion.
0: I, I think that you know his he did have you know uh, General Tom Thumb and and uh, some really tall individuals, uh, giants and giantesses, as they were called, um, and that's probably where he kind of got um, a, not, I don't want to say stigmatized, but labeled
2: pigeonholed, maybe. Pigeon, yeah, pigeonholed, yeah, yeah.
0: Pigeonholed, yeah, there you go. So, you know, I mean, he did He did have some interesting people
2: Tom in, his, Thumb, uh, in we, his show. And the interesting thing about Tom Thumb, and we talk about this a lot um, at the museum, the idea of him exploiting Tom. Tom was, um, interestingly, the only Bridgeport native we talk about. But Barnum meets him, and he's just a boy totally captivated, um, but his real name was Charles Stratton. And he he could sing, he could dance, he was engaging. I mean, he was just a charming, exceptional child. And Barnum worked out a deal with his parents to create a character for him. So he became General Tom Thumb, you know, this little tiny, you know, man in miniature. And ultimately, very, very early on, and this is the 1840s, he was paying Tom $25 a, a week. Hmm. And you look at wow. that, you, you times that in, um, in today's market. I mean, that's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, by the end of the ga- engagements he had. Plus he made sure he had his schooling and his parents right. came with him. So, and he was roomed and he was bored, boarded. So he always had accommodations and it, he was, and it wasn't like he was just propped up on a stage and it was sort of like a freak show. He was meeting the Queen of England. He was meeting the crown heads of state all over Europe. It was Horace Greeley, who's one of America's most notable um, newspapers, certainly during the Civil War. It was Horace Greeley that helped get him the engagement uh, with the Queen and the royal family. So he was the first major, major celebrity ever. To exist, and it was because of Barnum's genius and understanding of promotion and advertising and advance sales to get the public mind ready um, right. for the attraction, and the way he would be showcased. In a sense, they were they were called levies. He would stand on a table you know, sing a song, engage, um, engage people individually. It wasn't like he was there just for people to gawk at. It was an interactive, hmm. um, and it was quite sophisticated and he had characters. So he did everything from, um, like global figures like the Highlander. He did Napoleon, which I always laugh because that, that character did not play when they were in France. <laughs> they abandoned, <laughs> abandoned the Napoleon thing, um, So it was, you know, it was an attraction celebrity that you would go to see. And and when Tom Thumb uh, ultimately died, when Charles died, uh, rather young, um, in the 1870s, um, he was a multimillionaire. So he and he and Barnum stayed friends throughout their entire lives. Barnum truly loved him. And they are actually buried across from each other here in Bridgeport at Mountain Grove Cemetery. So till, till death, um, they remained wow. good friends. So it's a wonderful story, you know, of f- friendship. Um, you know, even when Barnum lost his money in a, um, in a business transaction... Um, Barnum refused charity. I mean, hundreds of people wanted to give Barnum money to help him renegotiate his finances, and, and uh, Barnum writes he wouldn't take any money. And it was when Tom Thumb approached him and said, "Hey, old friend, instead of nobody giving you money, why don't we, you know, get our show back on the road, go back to England, so you can re, you know, establish your, you know, finances?" And that's what Barnum would do. He goes, "I could do that. I could mm, work." Right. It. So he, you know, they were there for each other in their lives. So it's it's a much deeper story than right. is commonly known. You know, uh, somebody,
0: somebody else that Barnum helped a lot, you know, gave a really good life to was, was Anna Swan.
2: Mm. Yes, she was the giantess that was in the yeah. American Museum. Yes, yeah, survived the fire.
0: Survived the fire. Uh, so. They had to lower out it with a derrick, didn't they? They had to... Yeah.
2: Yeah, it to, to so took
0: 18 men or something to,
2: and, to lower yeah, her. Yeah, they got her out. And, uh, you know, and that's that's true of a lot of the performers that um, Barnum hired. Um, because the American, just to, to circle back and explain what the American Museum was, it. Um, do you remember the commercial uh, just in modern time? It was a BSF or something like that. It was like, we didn't invent the textile. We made it better. Remember that? Right. Version? Yeah, I
1: remember that, that one.
2: That is so Barnum. He didn't invent <laughs> a lot of this stuff. He just know knew how to hit it out of the park and right. make it unbelievably sensational. And um, Barnum actually purchases Scudder's American Museum. In New York City. And, I mean, it's so down in New York City, it's like down by the Woolworth Building, you know. Oh, Uh, wow.
1: Old old New York, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so this
2: is the time New York wasn't even in the numbers yet. I mean, 14th Street becomes a hub later on, but, I mean, New York wasn't even that close. It was really just downtown. And he purchases Scudders, and it's kind of a tire uh, museum a lot of ornithological, biological specimens in it. He refers to it as kind of dark and and dusty. And uh, with his purchase, he invests a tremendous amount of money to revitalize it, uh, bring in as many attractions from all over the world as he possibly could. And it was five huge floors of not just human curiosities, it's the first, really, the first zoo in the country, mm-hmm. so there are animals inside it. It's the first aquarium in the country. Really? They were actually pumping water in from the East River, and they had beluga whales in the basement of the American Museum. Oh, my and gosh. gosh I so, mean, see,
0: it is like night, uh, night at the Museum.
2: Yes. <laughs> you know, <that> is- Living <laughs> exhibits.
0: There <laughs> you go.
2: So and uh, it's a time you know you can't think about Barnum too without p- really placing it in the time. I mean the country is still pretty new. We haven't quite figured out what it, the constitution means in our individual lives. So you, you he's a true Jacksonian democrat. I have a voice, you know, and I can I can speak my mind. And he really championed that in New York City at the time. And the composition of New York, it was a lot of the Irish immigration coming in at that time. Um, it was, it was a, it was a, I don't want to say it was a tough neighborhood, but it wasn't as genteel as people think. It was a time when any kind of theater going was only for men. Women and children, there was no place for it. So you would have establishments where men would go and there'd be drinking and there would be bad behavior and, and language and smoking. Barnum would have none of that. He would have none of that. So he recognizes the family audience. It's the first time this happens. He creates the moral lecture room in the, in the American Museum and makes the, the, uh, productions palatable for for women and for chil- children. You have matinee audiences. So they were doing pro- temperance productions. They, wow. This was a big thing. They had the, the drunkard was there, Romeo and Juliet, but they needed to have happy endings so nobody dies. <laughs> I, I would love to see that. Um, but then later on, it got into some of the more challenging social issues at the time, and they did performances of Uncle Tom's Cabin but they did do them with a happy ending huh. to to make, you know, to, to be more sensitive to women and children that would be coming in and experiencing entertainment at that time. So he really does coin the show business. So this is the kind of um, vibrant place the American Museum was. More people would visit the American Museum at that time than actually lived in New York City. Hmm. So it is the first major attraction to exist. Right. Huh.
0: Well, I, I know that you've got a lot of really cool stuff there. I, I was wondering, do you have the original Cardiff Giant or a replica?
2: No, neither.
1: Uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Bummer. We do not have one. So if somebody has one, um, no, the the original fake, is up in uh, Cooper's,
0: yeah, the, the original the, fake.
2: The, the original <laughs> fake, yes, um, yes, and, um, and and that's another thing too that Barnum never never said. There's a sucker born every minute. Um, it was said in association to the Cardiff Giant, that's but right. not by Barnum. Yeah, he Barnum wanted to lease the Cardiff Giant. He had not again. He didn't invent it. He just made it better. He wanted yeah. to lease it and exhibit it and, and split the uh, split the take with the owner. And um, the owner's like, "I already, you know, sold its interest to um, to some Syracuse businessmen." And this is 1869, by the way, so it's a, a little later. Um, and Barn said, "Okay, you won't." go into a deal with me. I'll make my own. So he sent an artist (laughs) to copy it. Barnum made his own fake and is exhibiting it in New York City at the same time. Of course, Barnum is getting much more attention, you know, so people would go and see his. So the Syracuse guys put an injunction on Mm. Barnum to stop him from exhibiting his fake of their fake. And the judge is like, "You got to be kidding me! Get out of my court!" And then the Syracuse <laughs> guy said, "See, there's a sucker born every minute." And uh, uh, labeled. So,
0: with what it. happened to his fake?
2: There's um, some folks say it belongs in the collection of marvelous Marvin. Uh, at this point, I don't know if that's yet another fake. It's hard to say, so I'm not quite sure. I can tell you where the Fiji Mermaid is. That okay. More certain about, (laughs) Um, which is an earlier, yeah, which is an earlier um, exhibit that Barnum had at the American Museum. And a friend of his, uh, Moses Kimball, who was a museum proprietor in Boston. At that time, they would correspond back and forth. We've got a lot of uh, correspondence between Barnum and, and Kimball. And Barnum said, well, let me borrow your Fiji mermaid. They'd been around for decades. The idea was it was a, yes, a creature whose body was of a fish. And the um, the, the lower body was a fish and the upper body was a monkey or an orangutan. And they were artfully sewn together. And Barnum staged this huge um, frenzy for people to come and see it. He had advanced uh, information stories that it was uh, being traveled around by a naturalist from the London Museum and people got all excited they were going to go see it and he was promoting it at the American Museum as something beautiful. Huge banner flying off the, the building and the alleged naturalist who had it was a friend of Barnum's, and uh, he refused to actually go into the American Museum and continue with this story until Barnum took the banner down because he said that that's okay, that's over, that's over the line. And Barnum's like, "No, I spent a fortune on this thing," and the guy's like, "I'm I'm out, I'm not even doing it." Barnum's like, "Okay, I'll take it down." So they did show the Fiji mermaid, and when people came to see it, it was this hideous creature that it was all contorted and looked like it died in agony, and Barnum literally says, I went too far with the Fiji mermaid. That is Barnum's line in the sand, where he wow. felt he went to. So he actually gave the uh, Fiji mermaid back uh, to Moses Kimball, and today, there are two in the collection of the Peabody Museum at Harvard University. Hmm. So we do suspect that one of the two in Harvard uh, was the one that Barnum borrowed. Wow. Isn't
1: that amazing? Huh. Yeah, that is
2: that is. Yeah. Well, uh, Kathy, let's let's take
1: a uh, a, a step back. And uh, when did uh, when did Barnum first realize that that this this was his life that this was what he was going to do? When did he catch the bug? Oh,
2: you know, we are so lucky because he writes his first autobiography in 1855. Hmm. And he recalls so many stories. It's, it's great because we have a, matter of fact, that was actually one of the damaged artifacts from the tornado, believe it or not, but we saved it. Um, hmm. But it's a wonderful uh, recount of his early enterprises. And when Barnum was a boy, he, he recalls that he had always had a bug. He was born in Bethel, Connecticut, which is a, charming little town just north of here in Bridgeport and um, it was very agrarian it was uh, not a wealthy community it was very Yankee interestingly there's a a, yeah Um, so there's a real there's kind of like a very raw authentic kind of quality to Barnum's writing Um, but he recognized when he was a boy that he was pretty smart particularly with mathematics and he gets an opportunity when he's 12 years old to get out of town and go on a cattle herd, like to Brooklyn <laughs> and New York. <laughs> and it's his first taste of New York City. And he recognizes because he barters and trades um, in a general store. He sees that as I, if I'm clever enough, I can negotiate for what I want in life. So he sees that when he's 12 years old and then fast forward um, he's a young gentleman he's he's married at this point he's lived in New York City he's um, come back to Bethel uh, to run a general store and again it's a lot of that Yankee bartering trade going on and uh, you know you gotta do your best not to get gypped because there was a lot of that kind of uh, Yankee pull at that time and um he hears about an itinerant traveling show, um, a woman named Joyce Heth, who is the 161-year-old nursemaid to General George Washington, that she had documents and papers. She was a slave, and he was intrigued by it, and he saw her, and she just glistened with antiquity and no teeth, and she would tell stories about little George and sing hymns, and um, he negotiated a deal to purchase her. He then emancipated her. And he said, I want to take you on, you know, take you on a traveling, you know, route and exhibit you in different halls around the New England area uh, all the way up into Boston. And uh, they did. So he had exhibits set up and she would be staged. And actually, she her uh, receipts started Dropping a little bit when she was in the Boston area. So Barnum was very active with the newspapers and he wrote to the newspaper. He goes, you know, I'm really not sure if she's real. I've been with her a long time. Maybe if you come back, you can see the gears churning in her cheeks and she's really <laughs> Indian rubber. And people like, ooh, that's interesting. Now he was brilliant because he never told you anything. And this is what I've learned. So I'm letting all your, your listeners in on a little secret. He never tells you what it is. He presents you with curiosity. Mm-hmm. He presents you with an opportunity. He's giving you the chance in a, demo, you know, in, a, in a Jacksonian democracy to say, you come and make up your own mind. That's, that's what I'm giving you. So it's brilliant. It's brilliant and people loved it and people were thirsty for that at that time. So that is one of, that's, that's where Barnum is a genius. And it still works today. You know, Mm -hmm. it, it still works. I mean, that's reality TV. Oh yeah. You're welcome to watch it. And does anybody really believe it? No, but it doesn't matter. And that's exactly what Barnum mastered 150 years ago, 160 years ago. So with Joyce Heff is when he creates the term, you know, the show business. And that's when he gets the bug. That's his calling. It's, it's not working in, in small shops. And he's totally taken by the idea of New York and what he could actually imagine. And bring to life. And then then it just becomes a ride. And then he has um, Tom Thumb, you know, becomes the next major attraction. And then, of course, the Fiji Mermaid. And then he delves into a whole other enterprise, which nobody really realizes. Um, when he was with Tom Thumb traveling in um, the United Kingdom and all through Europe, he had heard, only had heard of Jenny Lind, the Calaturo Soprano. Who was the Swedish Nightingale, and he he writes in his autobiography that he he preferred that level of entertainment. He was a frequent um, guest in operas and theaters in Europe. He really did enjoy that more so than just the attractions at the American Museum. So he negotiated a deal with Jenny Lind, who who decided to take. Uh, Barnum on as the uh, as the manager of the American tour, so in 1849 they struck a deal. Barnum actually had to, and she was shrewd, 187 thousand dollars in a banking house in London before Jenny Lynn would pack a petticoat. Oh wow! I, I mean, think about that in terms of today.
1: It's That's a, a huge, huge amount of money.
2: Huge amount of money, and Barnum realized when she signed the contract. That nobody, nobody in America had any idea what opera was. You know, you might have small sections of society, the Knickerbockers right. in New York City, and but to the the masses, the way he, the only way he could make money is that people had to go see it. And again, where he was brilliant was he understood that I can't go to the American population. Where we are in this moment in time, say she's a brilliant opera singer, you gotta go see her. What he wound up doing was promoting her on her extraordinary character. The fact that she was so generous, um, that she, she contributed Tens of thousands of dollars to orphanages, uh, starting up musical schools for young women um, in Sweden, uh, fire departments. It goes on and on. So he would literally promote her with a beautiful image, um, you know, an etching of Jenny Lind, and then circling her image, it would say, you know, five thousand dollars to to uh, a home for indigent women. Or, or the orphanages, or whatever the charity might have been. So you have all of that documented. And that is what captured the hearts of Americans. It was that altruistic moment in time where people were thirsty um, to embrace all of this kind, spirited, benevolent um, character. And people were just yammering to see her. So bringing Jenny Lind to America transformed American entertainment the way we know it today. Everything came in at that moment. So you have opera, and then theater houses started going up to accommodate her. Ballet started coming in at the American Museum barn. Like human curiosities, everybody think of the giants or the freaks. What was a curiosity in the American Museum? Were ballerinas. Huh. This was not, this was not, you know, um, Barnum would bring higher families from different countries, whether it was Germany or Japan, they would come in their traditional clothing and their language and their instruments, their music, their songs, and engage with people in these more, you know, intimate settings because people in this country in the 1840s and 50s, you couldn't just jet off or sail off to England, you know. At the drop of a hat, or, or charming, so Barnum was bringing the world to the American Museum. Today, we call that Epcot. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what you—you you can't work at those pavilions unless you're from that part of the world, and right. that's what Barnum was doing. So he was bringing the world to the American shores, and people loved it.
1: Well, it's—it sounds very much like the concept of uh, children's museums. Nowadays.
2: It would, yeah.
1: Yeah, 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 you know,
2: I mean, go ahead. I'm sorry, um, ton of innovation. Barnum loved technology. I mean, sewing machines were a fascination at that time. Mm. You know, I mean, just the fact that, that the idea of the sewing machine was becoming like a computer today. You were able to do so much production. So people were fascinated by seeing these machines and their advancements. Um, animatronics. You know, the idea of moving machines, you know, they'd been, again, Barnum didn't invent that, but he brought them and exhibited them to the masses. So the American Museum had, you could even call them like little mini laboratories where you could see them and engage. So yeah, it's really the first science museum as well. Barnum's is actually one of the very first voices recorded by Edison. And really? You can Google it. Yeah, yeah. You could actually oh. Google it.
0: Do you? And, so you can actually find the recording of his voice yeah, online. It's cool.
2: amazing. It's for me. It's a little creepy. It's like my boss. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's Like, oh my god. But um, well,
0: well, Kathy. Speaking of creepy, and speaking of nine at the museum, tell us if, if there's anything truly creepy that has happened in the museum after hours or.
2: I, you know, uh, I, any I, other I thing something. like that? Coming here sure. tonight, I don't get. Sp- I, I actually stayed here the night of Sandy, the hurricane, because uh, right. I don't get spooked very easily. But when I right. got here tonight, we just got a new copy machine, and it started going off. <laughs> 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 <I'm not kidding. laughs> it's a whole new sound that I wasn't from that I'm not familiar with, and it was like it's like a, it's a midnight at the museum, and then like all of a sudden the the new Xerox <laughs> machine is.
0: <laughs> so, is that the extent of weirdness then?
2: That was that was probably the most creeped out I'd, I'd been without a natural disaster uh, circling me. Yeah, people have asked, and we've actually had uh, some folks come in, you know, looking for readings and stuff. The building, it's always been a public building. Right. Um, yeah, so people, like, people say, oh, is it Barnum's house? You know, did he die here? No, um, he, he didn't. Actually, he... Endowed the museum that I'm in. So the, this, he endows the museum. It's a home for the Bridgeport Scientific Society and the Fairfield County Historical Society. They needed a place to put all their relics and do all of their lectures. Right. He dies right after it's all set. I mean, even the drawings are done. Um, so he never even sees um, sees the museum Sadly. oh my God oh. I know I know his second wife Nancy does and she donates quite a bit and actually because the two organizations um, existed before Barnum died a lot of the collection that we have was donated by him which is wonderful um, so he does he does most certainly have his mark um, with this museum and if you if you have a chance to Google and look at how beautiful the building is it's it's just spectacular. Um, you know, so we're so lucky it's still here and it 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 withstood an EF one tornado. But um, but no, I've I've never been um, i I've, I've never been creeped out. Maybe I'm just creepy. Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you've never had like any stories from other employees or
2: no. And I have good. been for that a long time. Um, well,
0: you've got a lot of inter- different energy there. You've got people coming in from everywhere. It would
2: take like. it would take a pretty um, powerful um, yeah spirit from beyond to to come up against what I've got going on. I want to find in the morning. <laughs> I got to yeah. tell you. Um, well, you know, usually when
0: you have an old historic building like that, there's always you know all the the local rumors and the tall tales and everything. I think it's pretty interesting and kind of attributed to the fact that he was really a businessman that you don't really. Have those rumors there?
2: Yeah, he, he really was. Now the the city of Bridgeport itself has got some phenomenal stories, and we do our um, we work with our our city librarian uh, and do the haunted walks. We start here, right. you know, and that's that's fascinating and very very interesting. But I, I will tell you an interesting story though. The um, a descendant of Barnum's um, who was a curator here back in the nineteen forties. Mrs. Seely, she not here, not in the building. But the poor thing was um, apparently there was a break-in in her house, and she wound up, wound up um, dying from um, some of the injuries that she got oh my from the burglar. Yeah, so she was uh, she actually was murdered, Mrs. Seely. You know, sadly, and we've got a lot of the old records that she kept. But um, but again, she wasn't in the building. I tell you though. Mark Twain and Barnum knew each other. And
0: now that's cool.
2: That Barnum yeah. knew everybody, but I enjoy that relationship. And one thing that Mark Twain would do, and the letters exist, but he would write, he wrote to Barnum and he said, Please save me all the queer letters you get from all over the world. I can use them for my stories. <laughs> so Twain is actually taking Barnum's fact and turning right. it into some of his fiction. And the Cardiff Giant story we were talking about, um, Twain writes about Barnum's giant, it, and it's called the Ghost Story. Hmm. So it's it's really very yeah, interesting yeah. that there's yeah that there's an element of that kind of um, supernatural that uh, in, is so intriguing, go, going all the way back to to them as contemporaries. As contemporaries, yeah. Wow, that's
1: cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, now um, I guess that uh, his uh, his American Museum there in New York, though, didn't uh, um, it, it? It had kind of a sad ending, didn't it?
2: Yeah, the it opens in eighteen. Like I said, New Year's Day in eighteen forty two, and um, you know that's twenty. 25 years of a person's life. I mean, think about what you live through. Um, as Barnum even says, you know, your struggles and triumphs. So by the time the 1850s come along, Barnum realizes he's got more of an obligation. Like I said, he was a Jacksonian American until the eve of the Civil War. And he was... Very, very upset with the expansion of slavery, West, and he changes his party to Republican. He's one of the first Republicans. And again, he knows Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, and literally, he writes that if you are so blessed to be born in a country where you have these rights, it's your obligation to be political, and stand up for what you truly believe is right and that he had no access to grind so he could run for office, political office, for no personal gain at all. Imagine that. Um, right. he pulls his gubernatorial candidacy in 1852 because he was still at that time a Democrat and he just couldn't support, um, you know, uh, the issue of slavery and the dissolution of, of the Union. So, he does realize that he could run as a Republican for the town of Fairfield first um, on the platform of the expansion of, um, uh, of citizenship with the, amending the Connecticut Constitution. So he does that. Now, while he's championing that on the floor, he he actually gets a note slipped to him that he puts it in his pocket, and it turns out that the entire – he. He finds out that the entire American Museum is in flames. Yeah,
1: oh, 1865,
2: goodness. right after the end of the Civil War, and as it turns out, it's alleged um, to have been caused by Southern sympathizers. So, sadly, yeah. it's really the first major terrorism in New York City. So it was a total loss; it was gone, and. Um, what he sees was he has just hundreds of employees and the Niblo's Theater and Winter Garden Theater, they're doing fundraisers for people because there's no such thing as insurance at that time. You know, none of, of this, these kind of safety nets that we have today existed. And he gets up another museum just up the block on Broadway still. Um, where they could put a whole bunch of new exhibits in there, get people employed again, and three years later, the second American museum goes up in flames, and that's due to a boiler failure. Again, he's introducing technology. This is all new technology at the time. Right. And that's when Horace Greeley says, Take this as a sign, my friend, and go a fishing. And that's when Barnum goes out west. Um, and it's during that time that he's approached by Midwestern circus promoters. And they ask him if he would lend his name to a great traveling show. And Barnum actually <laughs> says, that would revive my love of my museum. So they open in 1872 in Brooklyn, 10,000 seats under a tent and traveled with a museum tent and a fine art tent. But a 10,000 uh, seat big top. And it was never called the circus. It goes through so many names. But it's always the greatest show on earth. Wow. So, um, that's that's how the the circus finally came to be part of Barnum's uh, Barnum's right.
0: Band. So, did did he ever have any actual personal interaction with, say, uh, uh, Bailey and and um, the yes. Ringling Brothers?
2: Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> Bailey,
2: yes. Um, he meets Bailey later on uh, in the eighteen seventies into eighteen eighties. And But still, it was always the greatest show on earth, the great London shows, the United uh, combined shows. It's not until 1887, three years before Barnum dies, is the first time he combines his name. That's the first time you see Barnum and Bailey, greatest show on earth. And he, he actually did that. Be, he says that James Bailey exhibited steel of his own. He saw uh, their partnership as the great alliance, and he felt that Bailey could continue what he worked so hard for his entire life to get to this point. Um, So Bailey continues it. Barnum dies in 1891, and the show actually becomes um, a a true machine. It's the Ringling Brothers' um, world's greatest show who became the major competitor so they're competing. Barnum, like I said, has passed away. Bailey dies in 1907, and that's when Ringling step in and buy Barnum and Bailey Greatest Show, hmm. but they travel them separately. So it's really not, believe it or not, not until 1919 where the Ringling brothers say for economic reasons, World War One, all sorts of uh, things are happening on the planet. Let's just combine the shows, travel one big show. And that's the first time you see Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey is 1919. So Barnum's dead 28 years before you actually see that. And I I love my Ringling friends. Talk to them all the time. And I keep telling them if he was alive, he never would have taken second billing. Never, never, (laughs) never, nothing in his, his, you know, history would suggest that would be okay with him. But um, that's that's really how it how it all came about. So it exists to this day.
1: All right. Well, uh, Kathy, uh, Mike, it's time for our second break. So, why don't we go ahead and go to that? And uh, when we come back, we will continue our conversation uh, about uh, PT Bottom. So, you are listening to The The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. So, stay tuned for uh, more interesting stuff. We'll be right back. 374 that's 954 973 3374 or visit keyinformation.com
0: remember Future Theater could be heard every Monday night at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 7 p.m. Eastern, with your host, Bill. That's
2: me and Nancy. I, Karumba. Burns, and we are broadcasting live right here on the PSN Radio. Breaking the walls down. This is radio. This is what people want.
0: To download the podcast, make sure you go to www.futuretheater.com. <laughs> systems are functional and get past the range to Mr. Jackal to the new king of radio. Is there life on other planets? This is nuclear physicist Stanton Friedman and now I'm a voice in the Jackal's head. Is the government keeping secrets from us? This is
1: Stephen Bassett and uh, I am now a voice inside the Jackal's head.
0: Want to
2: find out more? Listen to the jackal's head. The biggest trick the jackal ever told was to miss the world that he doesn't exist.
0: Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now, follow you. so Jacqueline yes mom I wanted to talk to you about something and oh wait hold on I just got a text oh there's another one wow busy busy me so anyway oh wait mom I just got a message my friends keep commenting on my comment oh there's another one so
2: many comments on my comment
0: oh I can't wait to watch tv tonight playoffs
2: hey guys check out my new video game Wait, wait. Mom, what?
1: Huh? What did you say? Wait a second, what? This weekend, unplug. Take your family to the forest. There's nothing in the world like experiencing nature firsthand. Trees, paths, bluebirds, streams. Getting closer to nature can get you closer to your family. To find the forest nearest you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ag Council. All right, welcome back to The Outer Edge. I'm Tim Swartz. With us tonight is, of course, Mike Mott and our very special guest, Kathy Marr. And uh, when we uh, when we left, we played a little bit of uh, a Lay Low by, uh, you say, uh, Audrey? Is your daughter's name, Mike? Audrey, Audrey Mott? Mott. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, I'm not sure what uh, the name of the,
0: be the be song be be is, but yeah. Yeah,
1: well, uh, let's see. We have it listed as Lay Low. Okay, maybe that's so. it then. <laughs> okay there you go and uh and 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 coming back in and and still playing a little bit in the background is uh more of uh bezel and that one is yeah. devil wind and yeah, so, they're good yeah they are they are good you know and that's yeah. uh, that's, one, that's one thing when you uh when you listen to the outer edge is that uh, you're gonna hear some uh some really unique and uh, uh music that uh, i mean we're just we're just so happy that that right. We're able to play it uh, for you here, so uh, you know. Just uh, we appreciate uh, these bands who who allow us. Uh, That's right. To, to to play their songs, and uh, you know, we we want to hear more of it. <laughs> That's right.
0: We're always looking for good stuff.
1: That's right. That's good, right. Good
0: stuff, unique unique tunes. All
1: Everybody. right. Well, uh, Kathy. Um, now that we're back, we have about a half hour, uh, a little less than a half hour in the show here, and and, and I wanted to ask you about um, uh, uh, your museum there, uh, the Barnum Museum, and... Uh, uh, since you're still working on the tornado damage that happened four years ago, I mean, what uh, what is your vision now? Uh, uh, which direction are, are you wanting to go uh, with it? Are you going to, you know, stay the course? Or do you see this as an opportunity to uh, 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 do something else, go in a different direction?
2: Well, you know, it, that's a great question because going through any museum um that's going through a renovation, let alone one that's hit with multiple natural disasters. There's a lot of thinking and a lot of planning that happens behind the scenes before anybody knows there's going to be a renovation done. Um, with the tornado, we were sort of thrust in the spotlight. So we had we not had any of the advantages of uh doing all of that planning, you know, quietly before we're announcing this is happening. So the, the, the world has been on this journey with us. So it seems like it's taking a long time, but we're probably, um, in a fast, in a fast lane on this. So when the tornado hit, of course, we had to activate all of the mechanisms to, to stabilize the building and deal with the environmental conditions. And we already talked about all of the artifacts, but simultaneously, we needed to say, okay, well, now we have a situation where the whole historic, you know, uh, portion of the museum really has to be gutted um, to deal with um, environmental situation. And, of course, things now have to be compliant with the Department of the Interior because it's a landmark, but things have to be modernized to meet, um, you know, the needs of, of people today. So we just need to figure it out in a sensitive, um, in a sensitive, you know, course of, uh, applications that we do inside the building. So yeah, like you said, it became an opportunity. So it's like, I keep calling it, this is the ultimate in making lemonade. So we started, we received a few grants to start doing um, intercept surveys uh, from uh, just a broad reach of the community and statewide. So we had everything from family representatives to teachers to scholars to business representatives in town and state leaders and, and city leaders. Ultimately, through the course of almost two years, we talked to pr- probably over 200 people. And it was important to have that voice. And what we found, the thread, the binding thread that almost every single group said or person interviewed said, well, gee, what would, what would Barnum do? And, um, it became curiouser and curiouser that, um, you know, after hearing it multiple times, I'm saying, oh, geez, what, what, what would Barnum do? I said, we really need to (laughs) think about that. So. Um like I said we collected all of these intercepts and we started looking for exhibit designers uh that we could work with because now we have um you know a, a a new emerging board of directors uh because you need different skills when you go through a situation like this and a core of national advisors so we have everything from scholars to attractions experts talking about Barnum, and we got to meet somewhere in the middle to create a phenomenal 21st century museum that's telling an incredible story. And it took some time, but the exhibit designers that we found, uh, BRC Imagination Arts, they're out of California, um, who are master storytellers. Um, They took all of our data had a few conversations with them and we were very, very fortunate to raise enough funds to do what's called a charrette to bring them here to to Bridgeport to the museum. We handpicked out of all that 200 people that we talked to, we handpicked 16 people that would represent a different voice. Who is the leader in the teacher conversation? Who is a leader in, in the community conversation and got them at the table And um, we did this intensive uh, couple of day discussion to really figure out what was going to emerge. And they brilliantly got all of the museum people to really speak in a way that takes Barnum historically and looks to him in the future. And what emerged were, um, not necessarily, oh, he was born in Bethel and he opened the American Museum, but these brilliant themes uh, emerged, like, um, illumination through curiosity. That's what Barnum gave you. Um, his willingness, his unyielding willingness to take risks. People today can connect to those things that Barnum did 150 years ago. So, We're not going to just tell, it's like, okay, this is the circus. We're going to give you the emotional journey of experiencing the circus through Barnum's words, through what he might have seen. So it becomes yours and you can leave somewhat illuminated from this experience connecting to Barnum. He becomes a human. He becomes a person on a journey through life just like we are. And what are those remarkable similarities and emotion, emotional roller coasters that Barnum took? Like we talked, he had – he didn't – you know, the first museum burned down. The second museum burned down. He actually had five catastrophic fires through the course of his life. He's the founder – one of the founders of the New York City Municipal Fire Department. Well, that just doesn't happen in a vacuum.
1: You know, that (laughs) comes –
2: You know, that comes through a series of emotional losses Um, and even talking about his family and how he talks about his family in a very 19th century manner. It's, you know, today we just tell everything in auto, you know, in TV and in books. Barnum keeps it very close to the coffin. He lost a daughter uh, before she was two. Not unusual in New York at the time, but he lost a second daughter. When she was third, uh, about thirty, he lost his wife. He saw Tom Thumb die, Jenny Lynn die. He had these these huge losses uh, that he conquered in life. Um, so he was a person. So these are the kind of things that we're going to be able to tell. And BRC right, has right. been brilliant about taking um, taking these stories and connecting to the core of. Who's leading the museum today and how do you make Barnum relevant today? And it's going to be an exceptional, uh, there really won't be anything like it. I'll tell you what they did. If you ever have the opportunity to go to the Abraham Presidential Museum in Springfield, Illinois, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable, and uh, BRC worked with them. They were the the team that that created the Presidential Museum for Lincoln, and we're looking forward to that that kind of emotional journey as well.
0: Right. Let me ask you this. When when the fire took place in New York uh, the first time, the the time when they had to lower Anna Swan uh, from the upper floor, did animals escape then, or did he have animals?
2: Uh, yeah, no. Oh, yeah, no. There were there were a lot of animals. Um, well, right. the whales, of course, didn't make it. You know, right. the New York yeah. Times did a. If you want, she uh, was. I have. Um, I can't remember what the website is, but the New York Times account of it is accessible. It's digit. It's up on on the web. Right. You can you can just Google it and it really speaks to the whole thing, but no, there was a right. ton of of animal loss I, I, that you know what that's another thing um, Barnum was friends with Henry Berg um Henry a name that's lost to history. Henry Berg is the founder of the ASPCA Wow Barnum gave and even in his will thousands of dollars to the ASPCA because again. It's something that emerged during this time. Barnum was not the only ones that uh, exhibited animals, but he writes, you know, in his autobiography, I love my animals far too, too well to harm them. You know, if, if we need to recognize the science to care for animals, then we have to. And uh, he had a statue made to Henry Berg uh, here in Bridgeport, which is absolutely beautiful. It's a little horse, but um, def- he put his money where his mouth is. He gave thousands of dollars to the founding of that. Oh, now, good for I, him. I, yeah.
0: There, yeah. There's, there's a scene in, in, uh, one of my favorite movies and this movie is, oh gosh, 50% historical fact and 50% confabulation, but that's, yeah. that's a movie called G- Gangs of New York, New York.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I talked to them that. a lot when did they you? were, yeah, I did. They called yeah. a lot. Um, okay. and, and they, you know they so desperately wanted Jumbo to be in New York City in the 1840s, and I was like, "Well, he's right. not. <laughs> he's
0: not, and, and he was killed was by like, a train." Forty
2: we'll years just... later. Oh um, no! No, wait!
1: Wait a minute here. So. T- you know, tell us! Tell us who Jumbo is. Jumbo.
2: Oh yeah, Jumbo. Um, again, Barnum did not invent Jumbo. Jumbo was a massive uh, pachyderm that was on exhibit at the London Zoological Gardens uh, in England. Beloved to um, the English children and, and communities. And Barnum worked so hard um, to purchase Jumbo and bring it to America. And they just dug their heels and they wouldn't. He finally negotiates a deal uh, to purchase, acquire Jumbo and sail him through um, and, you know, sail him over to New York. And he does. And Jumbo arrived. I, oh, gosh darn. I, I always get the date wrong. I think it's eighteen um, eighteen eighty Three eighteen eighty four. Yeah, Gosh darn it! Was, it, was I have late, it, it was late in the century. Um, yeah. But that's when you actually see um, it, language altered. The idea of anything huge to this day we refer to as right. jumbo. That's how it right. all starts. So jumbo's the the children's friend and would take people on on rides. And there's you know, jumbo came over with his handler Scott. Who truly loved him. I mean, there's a book about it that they would take care of him and he would, oh, this is a good story. When the Brooklyn Bridge was built, everybody knows the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, everybody was like, oh, it's the first expansion bridge. It's brilliant. It's incredible. You go first. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody <laughs> wanted to walk over it. And Barnum marched the troop led by Jumbo over the Brooklyn Bridge to prove wow, that's that really cool. this is advanced technology, that it would actually withstand the entire elephant troop and the animals going. And Barnum went with them. He didn't just send them. He went with them to prove that the Brooklyn Bridge would stand. But sadly, um, Jumbo was traveling with the, the, the traveling circus component in Toronto, in uh, Ontario. Yeah, yeah, right. in Ontario. And they followed the train tracks, and the time was wrong, and gosh darn, a train came and hit Jumbo and killed him.
1: Oh.
0: Yeah. He, he derailed it. He actually derailed yes. the
2: train? Yes, yes, derailed the train. And their stories that... That you know, Jumbo pushed the little baby elephant Tom Thumb out of the way and saved him. I you know that that again is what did you say? Confabulation? fabulation? Yeah.
1: Um,
2: but uh, sadly, it was ve- it was very very sad. People people really did mourn this this magnificent animal. And um, what Barnum actually did, it was a time to, and you you could say this in museums all over the place. The um, hide was completely stuffed taxidermied and the skeletal uh, assembly was created of jumbo so barnum had both the skeleton and the hide and traveled them separately right. after barnum died so it was remarkable but it doesn't even end there the the skeletal assembly was actually donated by barnum to the american museum of natural history in new york city where it right. still is today it's mm. not on display but Barnum actually created and endowed the Natural History Museum at Tufts University. Wow! Donated oh. Jumbo's hide, yeah, to Tufts. Jumbo is the mascot of Tufts just th- University.
0: Just think, they could clone that now.
2: They, uh, yeah. Well, uh. in 1978, the building burned down.
1: Oh, oh my God! God.
2: Yep. That's in terrible. In 1978, and gummy- today, the what? The remains of Jumbo were collected in a peanut butter jar.
0: Oh my gosh! What, what about his what about his tusk?
2: Um, I, there are sections of Jumbo's tusks in different places. Um, you know, we've got ephemera pieces, and we've got like yeah. bottles and jars, and and stuff. they actually could
0: do a clone from that, probably.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Um, but anyway, I was going to ask you. You know, I know that the area of Ontario that that this occurred in. Uh, what was he I mean, he had to, he brought a he brought a lawsuit, didn't he, against the railroad? him? Yeah, the death of, oh. I think he did. He said he sued the Canadian Grand Trunk Railway, which is a kind of an ironic name.
2: You know, um, I'd have to look at yeah, that. I'm I don't have any records of that, but that yeah. doesn't mean anything. That you know, but yeah, um, there was ooh. a
0: big, a big tit, uh, hullabaloo about that, but he, I don't he, think he won. Well, maybe he did. Maybe I'm. I'm going to look it up here real quick. Yeah, he won. He won ten grand. It looks like ten
2: grand, which isn't
0: a lot when you consider what he lost. I mean,
2: oh, oh, yeah, oh no, thousands, thousands and thousands of dollars. You know, so when you look back at his major enterprises, Jenny Lind in nine months, Barnum made uh, just under a quarter of a million dollars, and Jenny Lind made a quarter of a million dollars. wow. Wow. Yeah. So, and that was so groundbreaking that I, I really see that. And, and he completely transformed American entertainment. So I really see Jenny Lind as really pivotal for right. the American entertainment industry. And, you know, you think about the opera houses today, nobody thinks of Barnum as their champion, you know, right. um, which is something that I would love to change. But, um, but Jenny Lind, Tom Thumb, Jumbo. Uh, were the major, major attractions, And then we really want to bring it all home. Barnum actually works out a deal with uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, who he actually took down. He took down the railroad barons in Connecticut um, in the 1860s, right Right. when his museum burned down. But later on in life, he works out a deal with Vanderbilt to lease the trolley barn at the corner of Madison uh, Square Madison Avenue, 26th Street, which became the original Madison Square Garden. Right. Uh, so if it was not for P.T. Barnum, Madison Square Garden, where it is today, would not exist. I will be done wow. with my life when I get a statue of Barnum in front of Madison Square Garden. That would be awesome. So that had, would be. Yeah. Oh. I've got to find Michael Bloomberg to help me do that. Um, yeah. <laughs> good, as I get this good. place fixed and then we'll do that because Barnum is really um, – he he lays it all out. He lays out the. Well, wow.
0: he he had he had an influence with in just about every major um, social development some way at that time. It sounds He's, like.
2: He really did. He did, did, really did did he ever
0: did he ever interact with with uh, Boss Tweed at all?
2: Not that I have ever seen. Not that I have ever seen anything there are a few characters um that i often look because he was a born and was a prolific writer but you don't see any of that uh taking place they sort of miss each other somehow
0: they may not like each other but yeah
2: whatever whatever it is i mean even um they're kind of on the heels too with even edgar Allan poe
1: yeah Mm -hmm. that they
2: would have been a curiosity And, and poe dies i think in 1847 and I always hoped that I'd find some kind of correspondence. But Bar- there are letters between Barnum and Walt Whitman, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Ulysses Grant. I mean, it's wow. unbelievable.
0: Cool. Have you thought it's- about doing like a big coffee table book?
2: Um, it, it, a book was done a number of years ago, which is extraordinary, done by Kuhnhartz. any of your listeners could actually uh, look that up. K-U-N-H-D-A-R-T. H-T, I think it is. Okay. Uh, Philip and Peter Coonhart and it is they did a brilliant job collecting so much of uh, mr Barnum's history and they did great documentation on it and it's it's a I don't want to say it's a lot of sound bites they did real research on it but the pictorial journey that you can take with this is fabulous and I thank them you know you know from where All I am because it really can immerse you in such a breadth of the story. And they did so much good legwork collecting the documents and a fabulous read. The book that I wish I wrote is um, uh, The Art of Humbug, P.T. Barnum, The Art of Humbug, uh, done by Professor Neil Harris, who actually is one of our contributing scholars um, and puts Barnum so brilliantly in the context of his time. Right. I didn't even tell you about the fact that he got arrested, uh, in, when he was 21 years old for libel. People were out there. <laughs> Jacksonian America? Yeah. And uh, yeah. he's in jail and he kept printing the newspaper and they had a parade for him when he got out of jail. I mean, you know, he, it's, it's an extraordinary life. It's an right. extraordinary life. And if you do read it, or even his Barnum's autobiography, let him take you on, on this, uh, this journey. You just don't know how, a a, a you know, 60,000-square-foot museum could possibly tell the whole story.
0: <laughs> right. Well, did, I, I guess before you took the job, you, you, you probably did a little research, didn't you?
2: Yeah, I did. Um, you know, from my background, you know, I had a little bit of information, but not the, certainly not the depth of what I have now. Right. And what did really captivate me was uh, the Jenny Lynn story because that was truly something that I had no idea and and it just it's more underplayed than the other stories um and like I said in it surely is the most transformative so that immediately engaged me it's like how did he do this what right, right. What, is, what is the underbelly of this person you know what inspired him on mm. and in reading, In reading about him and how excited he was about these opportunities, that inspired me.
0: Okay, we've only got a few more minutes. and um, My son actually is a vocal major. Really? Uh, Yes. Uh, Why don't you tell the listeners more about Ginny Lind?
2: She was um, actually born in uh, Stockholm, Sweden or thereabouts, Stockholm, Sweden. And she was discovered, she, as a child, she was singing to her, uh, her little cat, and, um, you know, just... She was heard out of a window, and she was scooped up and brought to the schools uh, and given training. So she became, as she became an adult woman, um, the toast of uh, English audiences and Germany, and... Um, She became acclaimed in the 1840s, and when Barnum was traveling with Tom Thumb, he had heard about her. He never heard her sing, and he felt that it was an opportunity to elevate Americans' interests and tastes, to bring somebody who is so revered um, in Europe with such a puritive art and and like I said remember you know theater going and this you know theatrical entertainment was not really proper for women and Jenny Lind even herself uh, grappled both Barnum and Jenny Lind were very religious people and she felt that if she was endowed with this talent it was her obligation to God to give it you know out to actually perform right. and let other people hear it if it, it was giving people that much joy and entertainment so, um, she struggled with that. What's interesting about the American tour with Jenny Lind, it's the moment in time that, uh, all sorts of things happened that didn't happen before because just tens of thousands of people were coming to hear her because of Barnum's promotion. It's the first time you see ticketing happen, you know? Uh, they kept the prices at a certain level when the, uh, Jenny Lind and Barnum broke up. They dropped the prices. So it's the first time you see scalpers right so uh, there's just so very very much but the there, there really is, is I mean right. I
0: mean we're, we're so close to the end of the show and you know I wanted to ask you about his uh uh you talked about his many fires like uh, he had a palace called Iranistan or
2: yeah, Iranistan. That and was the house. yeah
0: yeah and just so many other things I mean uh we didn't talk about the Siamese twins um, they, they were
2: only with him yeah. for a very short time right he felt there's they were just so many things yeah I mean,
0: there's like yeah. 10 shows worth of material about pt barnum
2: yeah yeah there's yeah, quite it's just a bit incredible well uh
1: kathy why don't you uh why, in, in the amount of time that we have remaining why don't you uh, quickly give us the uh, uh website of the uh, barnum museum
2: oh sure at,
1: and maybe uh, maybe the address for people who are maybe a little bit closer and can go there sure. themselves
2: yes um the website is www.barnum.com hyphenmuseum.com dot com. Uh no, dot org. Ugh, see it's two o'clock in the morning for me. <laughs> Barnum Barnumuseum.org. Um or you could just Google Barnum Museum and we'll come up. We're uh right on Main Street in downtown Bridgeport, Connecticut. We are easy train ride um, right out of New York City, right out of Grand Central, or even the Long Island Ferry stops here too, and we're right off I-95, which is the main corridor up the east coast of the country, So, and we've got about a million airports <laughs> all over the place. You can just fly into Westchester, Kennedy, or Hartford. So, um, please, I encourage you, go to the website, uh, explore all the things we have to offer. Know that we've got a new museum happening. If anybody wants, oh, if anybody wants to make a contribution, oh, you have no idea how much we'd appreciate that. We still are working on, um, raising the funds. Right. To get the museum fixed and just to keep, and just to keep the basic stuff going. I mean, all of that costs a lot of money um, or become a member I mean that's a huge way to support us too and you can do all that on the website and then the phone is uh, 203-331-1104 and extension 100 actually gets you a living breathing person because we do live and breathe here um, <laughs> you know the barnum-museum.org is our website and that's a great way to get a hold of us
1: all right. Well, Kathy, thank you very much for being our guest tonight. Yes, really indeed. appreciate it, I and I hope
2: that
1: well, I hope that you'll come back again uh, oh. and talk to us some more in the near future.
2: That would yeah, be, be great. I'd love yeah. to.
0: Yeah, and and uh, I need to put a link up maybe tomorrow to your to your. Uh, Museum page on the
2: oh, that'd be great on, on our
0: page that we did for you for the show tonight, and we and I guess Tim will let you know when the podcast is available because this was a good show and uh, we 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 really like having knowledgeable people. Well,
2: <laughs> appear, appear. <laughs> uh, and listen, happy uh, holidays to you to everybody. You too. Real you too. joy.
1: All right, thank you, Kathy, and thank you out there for listening to our show. You've been listening to The Outer Edge. Uh, I'm Tim Swartz. Uh, uh, Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and uh, we will see you all again really soon. So stay tuned, and we will uh, be back on the air just real soon. So thanks a lot, and good night.
0: Still begs for change Mama won't say his name We like to talk about him Every holiday My friends are moved away Music just ain't the same We like to talk about him Every holiday